Today is sort of the Super Bowl, if you will, of the Christian calendar year, okay? It is, it is, it is like the Super Bowl of the Christian calendar year. If you can't get hyped about today, you can't get hyped about anything in regards to the Christian faith. But the truth and the reality is that for some of us who've gone through Easter's growing up all our lives, Easter isn't that big of a deal. Easter doesn't stir much emotion in us. Easter doesn't have a whole lot of significance. Here's the problem with that, though, and not my words. The Apostle Paul, the guy who we'll look at today, this is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in regards to today and the significance of today. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul flat out comes out and lays it out and says, if Jesus Christ has not been literally and bodily raised, there's nothing to talk about. Talk about what? Gather for what? Meet for what? And furthermore, he says, if Christ has not been literally and bodily raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. Believe in what? Put our hopes and trust in what? At the heart of Christianity, friends, is not a teacher. At the heart of Christianity is not a philosopher. At the heart of Christianity is not even just a good moral leader. At the heart of Christianity is a man who claimed that he was God. And he proved it by dying and rising again from the dead. At the heart of Christianity is not a set of teachings. At the heart of Christianity is not a set of philosophies. At the heart of Christianity is an event. An event that marks changing of everything in the world as we know it. What does today mean? In order for us to understand the significance of what today means, we need to go back. We need to go all the way back. I'm talking all the way back, like the first couple pages of the Bible in a book known as Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, we see, we see world as God intended, life as God intended. We see life and uh, meaning as God intended. And we need to go all the way back in order for us to come to today as a significance of why today is so important and what it does for the future. So if you have your Bibles with me, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We are going to look at a number of passages today from the Bible. Uh, I want to encourage you guys to mark and uh, and take notes of which these scripture passages are because I'm going to go by them fairly quickly so that you can go home and look them up for yourself. The Jewish folks, the Hebrews, had had a word that they used to describe life as the way God intended in Genesis. And it's this Hebrew word, shalom. We all say that together. Shalom. Say it again. Shalom. Shalom literally meant universal flourishing. Shalom literally means peace. Shalom literally means harmony. Shalom literally means life as God intended. And the Hebrews had a word for describing what life was like, what creation was like when God had it just the way he wanted it to, and the word was shalom. And what we're going to see is a description of shalom, harmony, universal flourishing, life as God intended when God first created the world. Take a look. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. I'm greatly indebted to a man named N.T. Wright who who, who has given insight into what I'm going to be talking about for a big part of today. 
In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we see this big Hebrew word, say, Baruch with me, ready? Baruch. And that's literally the word for blessed. And we see God blessing man and, and making him in his own image and blessing them. And the sense that we see there is harmony. The sense that we see there is shalom. The sense that we see there is God and man in a relationship as God intended, in harmony, flourishing, life as God intended. You know what that's like? Imagine praying and ever feeling that voice inside of your head that says, I'm bored. How long is this going to go? Imagine worship energizing you. Imagine worship energizing you. Imagine, imagine worship making you feel close and experiencing the presence of God always, always, never, ever not experiencing the presence of God, knowing that He is right there. Shalom. Blessed. Imagine going to work and you love what you do. You don't dread it. It fills you with energy and passion just thinking about work. As you think about tomorrow, you can't wait to to get to work. And when you go to work, life energizes you from work. Work is exactly what God created you to do. And as you do it, you're singing to yourself, I can do this forever. Yeah, we lost a lot. Imagine living a life in which you feel a connectedness, intimacy with God, and it never goes away, and everybody else around you feels the same. God bless them. Baruch. And then it goes on in Genesis chapter 2. We see another aspect in which world worked in harmony in Shalom. Verse 8 of chapter 2. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Not only is there uh, 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 shalom and harmony between God and man, but there's also harmony in creation. What does this mean? It means that man is, 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 is connected to his creation in a way that there's no abuse, there's no exploitation, and as a result, the creation itself is functioning in God attended way. It brings forth fruit. There's life. There are no tornadoes, no hurricanes, no earthquakes to speak of. Creation is a beautiful and perfect reflection of God's glory. The environment perfectly reflects the beauty of God. And there is no sin. There is no brokenness. There is no death. And the context in which man is placed in is incredibly important for our story, as you'll see. But then it goes further. In in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, The man said, This is now the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The writer of Genesis had a particular way of writing. He is trying to force you and I into deeper realities. For example, the word Adam, Adam, literally in Hebrew, comes from a ground so, so, so literally the word there is ground man or dirt man. And the word Eve literally is mother of the living. And Adam and Eve aren't just two individuals in this random story. They are representative of all humanity. In other words, Adam and Eve are a reflection of you and I. And what's incredible is in Genesis chapter 2, we find that they were both naked and they felt no shame. Again, deeper realities. What is he talking about? The writer is telling us that the way they related to each other was in the context of shalom, harmony. There's no fear, there's no insecurity, there's no paranoia, there's no pretending in that relationship, there's no sense of, uh, there's no, uh, I'm fine when you're really not, there's no sense of, of, of being fake, there is transparency, no masks. You know, it's like, imagine being in relationships with your spouse, with your friends, community, where they know the deepest, innermost secrets of your life and you're not afraid. 
You're not scared. You're not insecure. They know everything there is to know about you, and yet they perfectly and completely accept you and embrace you. Imagine never, ever feeling lonely. Never, ever, even for one second, feeling lonely because all of your relational needs are perfectly met. Shalom, man and woman. When God created the world and had it exactly the way He wanted, shalom, harmony, flourishing, intimacy, the entire created order functioning the way God intended it to, shalom, harmony, flourishing. But as some of you know, the story takes a dramatic turn. See, the amazing thing about this God that created the universe is that He is a God of freedom. You can't have genuine, authentic love unless there's freedom to reciprocate that love. And so God gives man and woman the freedom to either live according to His plans, live in the flow of His desires, His will, live under the rule and reign of God and experience life as God intended or go their own way. And man and woman choose to go their own way. The picking of the fruit, among other things, is symbolic of man declaring an emphatic declaration, I will choose my own way. I will come out from the rule and reign of God. I will do my own thing. And the results will be disastrous. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The result of sin entering the human story, the human drama, is that the relationship the man had and enjoyed with each other, with one another, is all of a sudden broken. And the intimacy is gone, and with it is replaced insecurity, fear, paranoia. The perfect relationship that they enjoy, intimacy, being fully known and fully accepted without fear is no longer there. And they realize that they're naked. And all of a sudden, they start feeling emotions and feelings I've never felt before. Shame, never felt that before. Guilt, never felt that before. Fear, never felt that before. Not only would the relationship between God or man and man be broken, man and woman be broken, but the relationship between God and man also We've broken in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Again, the, uh, the writer of Genesis is pushing you and I into deeper realities. And when God asks, Where are you? It's not because God doesn't know where man is, but he is asking a rhetorical question, Where are you now? You've chosen to go your own way. You've chosen to do life your own way. You've chosen to come out under the rule and reign of God and enjoy shalom and harmony as I intended. And look where it's left you. Brokenness, strife, division, fear, anxiety. Loss of life as we know it. For the first time as sin has entered into human story, the decay and death that invade humanity won't just affect our relationship with God, it affects our relationship with each other, and it also affects creation. Verse 17 in Genesis chapter 3, to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree by which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. See, one of the things that you and I, especially if we grew up in church, failed to recognize is that when sin entered the human story, when sin entered human drama, it did more than affect just our relationship with God. It affected our relationship with each other, and it affected our relationship with the created order. When sin entered the human trauma, all of life, all of creation, as God intended, fell. 
And disintegration, disintegration enters the human drama, enters the human story. And you and I feel that today. Somebody asked, how do you explain sin? I said, there's lots of definitions for sin, but let me explain to you what sin feels like. Sin feels like when you feel like your life is falling apart. Sin feels like when your relationship or your marriage feels like it's falling apart. And we use those descriptors to describe the influence and effect of sin. It's disintegration in the human drama. And here's how the story ends, in case you're not familiar. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, it says, So the Lord God banished the man and woman from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. And many commentators would say that what's happening here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, is that God, out of his mercy, drives the men and women out of the garden. Why? Because of their disobedience, because of their willingness to choose to do life their own way. Decay and death enters the human story, enters all of creation, and all of a sudden, disintegration takes place. And if men and women are not taken from that, they will be stuck in the state of disintegration, death and decay forever. And so God drives them out, drives them out from the garden. And the Bible says that he drives them east of Eden. And so life lies like east of Eden, friends. Life as we describe it today is east of Eden. What do I mean? Life east of Eden is where relationships are fractured. Life east of Eden is where we lost our center. And we look for our identity, our love, acceptance in everything and anything but God. Life east of Eden is when you look around and go, why are relationships so hard? Why are marriages so hard? East of Eden, when we say, why are relationships across ethnicity, race, and class so hard? Life east of Eden is abuse and exploitation of creation. Life east of Eden is where abuse and exploitation, not just of creation, but of humanity. Life east of Eden, friends, is where over 2 billion people live on $1 a day, where the rest of the world lives a totally different life. Life east of Eden is where millions of people are dying every day because of AIDS, and the rest of the world just looks on. Life east of Eden is where poverty, oppression, and injustice still takes its effect in breaking down creation. Life east of Eden is where millions of people today will worship stone and wood figures made uh, uh, as idols and as gods, not because they're ignorant or uneducated, but because their hearts are yearning and longing for that connection with their creator God. Life east of Eden is where you and I long for life of peace, of wholeness, and yet feel like, will we ever get there? Anybody know what life is like east of Eden? Life east of Eden is life with sin and death and decay, not as God intended. Life east of Eden is where you and I find ourselves today. You might not even be a Christian. You might not even consider yourself a spiritual person. And you're here today, and as you're hearing this, you're saying, my life right now is east of Eden. That's the human story, the human drama. And here's incredible news. You ready? 
here's the incredible news. See, God, this creator God, didn't say, I'm going to scrap everything and start all over. Let's do that. Let's just scrap everything and start all over because that's the best way and the easiest way to go about it. You know what God does? God decides to put into motion a, a, put into motion a plan, a restoration plan, a restoration project, a reclaiming project where he says everything that fell because of sin, all of creation, relationships, everything that has been marred by sin will be healed, will be restored everything. And the way he does this is he, he creates a nation out of one man named Abraham. Creates a nation called Nation of Israel. And through this nation, God gives them a set of laws and a way of life. Listen to this. This is why for many of us, Old Testament doesn't make any sense. We read the Old Testament and we go, that is just doesn't make any sense. What relevance does it have to me? All these laws. All, do you know why the Old Testament doesn't make any sense? Here it is. When we look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ came and died for me so I can go to heaven, Old Testament will not make any sense. But if you look through the Old Testament, you realize God calls a nation and he says, I want you as a nation to be a preview. I want you as a nation to be a pointer, a sign to the life that I'm going to create when I restore and renew everything. I want you to live your life in such a way with me and with each other and with the rest of the world around you that you be a light unto the nations, that they will look at you and go, that's what a nation ought to be like. That's what a society ought to be like. That's what a community ought to be like. There's a longing in our hearts for something like that. How do they do that? And so what does God do? God, for example, gives them the law, establishes the year of Jubilee, where every seventh year all debts are canceled. Wouldn't that be amazing news today? All debts are canceled, seventh year. Every seventh year, all debts are canceled. And you ask, why does God do that in the Old Testament? Why this crazy thing called the year of Jubilee? Here it is. They were to be a pointer amongst themselves to a time when God will restore all things. And anybody and everybody who is enslaved spiritually, who is enslaved financially, economically, who is enslaved in any other way will be set free. So God established the year of Jubilee to say, you want to know what life is like when all are freed and everybody experiences freedom in the kingdom and the life that God intended? There it is. And God gives a set of rules and a bunch of rules, not as a do's and don'ts, but to say, you need to be appointed. The way you do life, I want you to constantly look towards, uh, uh, be appointed to a time when I'm going to renew and restore everything that fell with, uh, everything fell because of sin. And throughout the Old Testament, God, friends, continues to give previews, pointers, trying to, through the nation of Israel, point to the rest of the world of what life will be like when God finishes his restoration project. And part of that restoration project will involve social justice, where the poor will be lifted, where the oppressed will be set free. And part of the restoration project will be one in which all humanity, all the nations, the Old Testament says, will come together and worship God as one. And all the division that we have set in our world because of race, ethnicity, nations will be gone. And all of humanity will worship at the throne room of God, all tribe, all language, and all tongue, glorifying their creator, their maker. And a world in which not just the creation, not, uh, not just the relationship with God, creation, but a world in which all of creation that's been affected because of sin will be healed and restored. And you're saying, where are you getting this from? Passages like this are found throughout the Old Testament if we choose to look that this was God, what God intended in Isaiah chapter 11. Listen to this amazing thing. 
This is a prediction of what the Messiah will do. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions to the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear. The young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious that is a vision of what God decides to do the vision that we see throughout the Old Testament of God renewing and restoring his fallen creation is one in which there is justice for the poor, justice for the weak, justice for the marginalized. A renewed world in which those nations that have been divided because of sin, because of wars and rumors of wars will come together under the banner of Jesus Christ as Lord. And all of creation will experience healing. All of creation will experience healing. The salvation that God intends, friends, from the very get-go is not individual, spiritual, you can go to heaven, but the salvation that God intends from the very beginning is for the whole world, for all of creation. Everything that fell because of sin. Is that good news to anybody? I don't know. I don't don't know if, if it is good news to you because to me, to me, unless you get that, what we're about to see will not make any sense. Jump to the New Testament. So who is Jesus? And what has Jesus come to do? Now you've got to follow carefully with me here because I'm going to go kind of quick and you need to catch what it is that I'm trying to say. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, this Jesus who has been prophesied as the Messiah, who is going to come and do what it is that God put into motion from the very beginning of time to restore all things comes. And he is crucified. And he is killed. Here's what we read in John chapter 19, verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Everybody look up here for a second. The gospel writer John, as many writers of that time, had a way of writing in a way that would capture the attention of their audience. There was a particular tool or instrument that they used in their writing that, that they used as an effective way to sort of grab someone's attention and saying, I'm pushing you to deeper realities. And the Jewish scholars called it the, the principle of first mention. Everybody say that with me. The principle of first mention. And here's what that meant, Jewish scholars. Whenever you came across the word, immediately you were trained to go, now where did that word first occur? Now where did that word first occur? And so here's what John does. Verse 41. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was, what does your Bible say? Say that with me. There was a garden. And in the, what does your Bible say? Garden. And now here's what John's first hearers would have said. As soon as they came across that word garden, principle first mentioned, their minds would have immediately gone to, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, garden. Yes, yes, I remember that. 
garden. That's Genesis chapter 3. The garden. The place where death and decay entered because of human sin. Ah, the garden. Genesis chapter 3. The place where human beings were placed to enjoy life as God intended, to live in harmony and in shalom. But the place where man decided to choose for himself a life outside of the intended will of God, the place where man decided to go his own way, and the place where death and decay first entered, the garden. The garden. What is John doing? What is the gospel writer doing? You need to get this or else this won't make any sense. The gospel writer is using this tool to push his readers into deeper realities and saying this death of Jesus in the garden and this burial of Jesus in the garden, friends, is pointing to a deeper reality. It's not just about there and then. It's about a deeper reality that points to what happened in the garden the first time around. The garden the first time around where death and sin entered. The gospel writer is pushing his readers into deeper realities and saying, look, what Jesus has done here has ramifications that are much deeper than just you, that are much deeper than just who's sitting next to you. It has ramifications for the cosmos. It has cosmic ramifications. The garden, the place where death first enters. The garden where all of creation and sin and decay enter. The garden, the place of disobedience. And then rumors begin to spread. That Jesus doesn't stay dead. That he has been raised from the dead. And look what it says in chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Verse 14, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Verse 15, woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the, what does your Bible say? Come on, say it with me. What does your Bible say? He was the gardener. Accident? Coincidence? gospel writer, pushing you into deeper realities. And in his typical Johan and ironic twist, he says, the gardener, perhaps the new Adam, perhaps the second Adam, not accident, not coincidence. Look what it says. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she chored toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And friends, here it is. I might have just entitled today's sermon, The Garden, because This is what the gospel writer John is saying. Listen, listen. I love this big stage. I wish you could just run around here. You know what I mean? I finally have a big stage where I can just do my thing. And I'm like standing still. Here it is, the garden. Here's what the gospel writer John is doing. And and God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would make this come alive in you. The garden. Genesis 3, the place where man disobeys and chooses his own way, and as a result, sin and decay enter that affects all the world, all of creation. Everything falls because of sin. The garden, the place where Jesus Christ is crucified and dies for the sins and the evil injustice of the entire world. The garden, the garden, the place where Jesus Christ is raised to life. The garden, the place where God says, 
everything that fell, everything that, 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 that became dead, everything that became decayed because of sin and death, that very same place, the garden, is the place where I will initiate and begin to fulfill my ultimate restoration project that will bring healing and restoration to the whole world. The garden. The garden. The garden is the place in which God, through the resurrection of his son, emphatically declares everything that fell with sin, everything that became marred with sin, the created order, my relationship with you, your relations with each other, everything that fell with sin, the restoration project, the ultimate renewal project begins where sin and death first entered the garden, the garden. The amazing thing is that the first Christians that caught on to this began to realize that the resurrection had ramifications way beyond just their personal salvation and sin. And one of these guys that began to write about the ramifications of the resurrection was a guy named Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we looked at that passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul begins to write about the ramifications of this this of this world-changing work that happens in the garden. And look what he says in verse 17 of uh, of Corinthians uh, chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Here's the ramifications of the resurrection in the garden, Paul says, as related to you and to me. Jesus Christ comes along, and in his life, he went around saying something that no one else said. And it wasn't love each other, serve one another, be good to one another, kind one another, be a good moral person. Jesus Christ went around, looked at people in the eyes and said, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders of his time didn't know what to do with that. Actually, they killed him for it eventually. Because they knew that there was only one person who had the authority to look at people in the eyes and go, your sins are forgiven. And that was God and God only. And yet Jesus walked around saying, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. And here was the significance of the death on Friday night and why it was so significant. Because if you are somebody that claims to have authority to forgive people of sins, then you must buy the same authority, have the, have the authority over the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. You can't go around saying, I forgive you of your sins, and then you fall under the power and authority of that sin, which is death. And so for Jesus to prove that he would have the authority to look at people and say, I forgive you of your sins, and you can know today where you stand with God, he needed to have the ability to overcome the ultimate consequences of sin, which is death. And so for Jesus to hang on the cross and to be buried, for the people who followed him, there went the hopes, not just of a good teacher, not just of somebody who said some nice things, but the hope of somebody who looked into their eyes and said, your sins are forgiven, and you can know today where you stand with God. Jesus dying on the cross meant the hope of not just eternal life, but knowing today, where do I stand with you, God? And the significance of Easter Sunday as the Apostle Paul continues to press us toward is this. If Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins, which means because Christ has been raised, he has overcome the ultimate consequences of sin, which is death. And by overcoming the ultimate consequences of sin, he has the authority today to look you in the eyes and say, I forgive you. You can know today where you stand with God. Today as I stand up here, 
I know that I'm speaking to somebody, group of people that are sitting here today, and this is so pertinent for you because you don't know where you stand with God. You don't know where you stand with God. You're standing wondering, because of what I've done last year, because of what I've done yesterday, because of what I've done last week, I don't know where I stand with God. I don't know if I can be forgiven. I don't know if I can be renewed, accepted, embraced, loved by God. And the good news of Resurrection Sunday says, Jesus Christ can look at you in the eyes and say, because I have risen, you can be forgiven of your sins. Because I have risen, you can be forgiven of your sins. And if you're sitting there, somebody that's saying, I, he could forgive some sins. He could look some people in the eyes and go, you're forgiven. You could start new. You can have your slate cleaned. You can begin anew. Some people, Peter, but me, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I've been capable of. Friend, don't take my word. The gospel tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. God says there's no sin too great. There's no wrongdoing too bad. There's no one who is hopeless beyond hope of who Christ is and what he has done. The Easter challenge for I don't know who it is today is embrace this offer of forgiveness. You can start clean. You can be new. Jesus invites you. For the rest of us, What exactly is the meaning of Easter? So what if he came out of the garden? So what if he was resurrected? Listen to the Apostle Paul. This is so great. This is so great. Listen to what he says. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But Christ has ended being raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, and when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Did you know, did you know that the first Christians understood the resurrection in terms of the kingdom? That the first Christians to hear about and realize the resurrection, their understanding of the resurrection had very little to do with God came to forgive you of your sins so you can go to heaven, but everything to do with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. The disciples' first question, first question to Jesus in Acts 1-6, when he was risen, is, Lord, when will you now establish the kingdom? They understood everything that had happened to Christ in his death and resurrection in perspective of the kingdom, not just some eternal spiritual reality. This is why if you walked up to a first century Jew and said, the kingdom is here, Jesus is risen, the kingdom is here, so I have my sins forgiven, I have peace in my heart, I can go to heaven when I die, that you would have looked at you and said, that's great, but why did you refer to that as the kingdom? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The disciples understood the resurrection of Jesus in the garden as the final coming of God's rule and God's reign, defeating all evil, all injustice, all oppression, everything that became marred in creation because of sin. They understood Jesus' victory on the cross and victory in his resurrection over sin and death, not just as, I'm glad that I can be saved now and go to heaven, but they understood that as the radical coming into the world of God's rule and reign that would restore and heal everything and bring about Isaiah chapter 11 here on earth. Are you tracking? Do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? 
Andy, come on up. We're finishing up here. Do you know what this means? For those of you that are hearing this for the first time going, Peter, what the heck are you, the kingdom of God? Do you know what this means? Here's what it means, friends. This world matters. This present earthly world matters to God, and so it ought to matter to us. The hope of Easter Sunday, the hope of Resurrection Sunday is not that Jesus Christ died a death so that you and I could have our personal sins forgiven and go to heaven to be with God, but the Resurrection Easter Sunday reminds us that through this, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, the inbreaking of God's power, God's love, God's justice, God's reign, God's peace has invaded the earth, not just to heal you, but to heal all of creation. Not just to take care of your personal sins, but to rid all the world of all evil, all injustice, all poverty, all death, all sin, and all decay. This world, Easter Sunday reminds us that this world matters. That God's plan wasn't from the very get-go. I'm going to just wipe it all out and start all over. But the plan of God in this world today is, I have come with my rule, my reign. I have come bringing about my healing, my power, my reign. And through that, you have a job to do. I have a job to do. What is that? It's to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And do it as you participate with God in his kingdom power. That means that everything you do, everything that I do here on earth matters Every cup of cold water that you give in Jesus' name brings about the kingdom. Every hand that you hold of someone who's lonely and you pray and you minister to a person is a piece of the kingdom and heaven on earth. Every time you work with excellence in your workplaces and display the character of God, that is kingdom, heaven coming down on earth. Every time you go out, you care for the poor, the broken, the marginalized, those who are lost hopelessly. Anytime you do that, it's kingdom come on earth. Anytime you do that, you and I are following in the footsteps of Jesus who came out of the garden to say, because I have risen, everything is changed. Because I have risen, all things will be renewed. Because I have risen, you have hope that the world as it is right now will not be as it is. But you have hope that when I finally return, everything that was marred by sin in Genesis 3 will be healed, will be redeemed, will be restored. You will have your family life that God intended back. You will have the relationships that you've longed for back. You will have a relationship with God, your creator, and walk with him in the garden once again. You will have that life back. Everything that you and I do in this present earth matters because God's intended will was never to whisk us away to heaven, but to bring the heaven to earth. To bring a touch of heaven in all the parts of this world. Where will the next William Wilberforce come from? Where will the next person who says, I will give my life to fight injustice in this world come from? Where will the next Martin Luther King Jr. come from who says, this earth will not be discarded. God has risen from the grave to renew and restore everything. And so I will give my life for causes here on earth that will bring about God's kingdom. Where will the next Christian follower of Christ come from who will look at a hurting and broken world and say, just as Christ rose from the dead and has given us new life, I'm not just going to sit around and go to heaven. I will make sure I participate and work with God and bring it about His kingdom on earth. Where? Where will they come from? Where will they come from? Will it be you? Will it be you here today? And the only way that you'll be motivated to live that life is if you realize that Christ came out of the grave, not just to whisk you to heaven, but to say, kingdom workers, change this world in my name. That's what today is all about.
That's what today is all about. That when you walk out of here, you can say, Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. And because of that, I will work and give my effort and energy towards letting my prayer that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven be fulfilled. One of my heroes, one of my heroes of faith. I'm out of breath, sorry. This is so exciting. One of my heroes of faith, St. Francis, told his students' disciples, they said, how shall we go about preaching the gospel? And you know what his words were? His words were, go preach the gospel to the hurting and broken world, and if necessary, use your words. A man had the audacity to go to one of the most famous ballerinas of all time and ask a stupid question. The question was, what does your dance mean? To which the ballerina replied, if I could have said it, I wouldn't have danced it. It's time for you and I to dance upon injustice in our world. It's time for you and I to dance upon injustice and oppression and the hurting of the world. It's time for you and I to dance with our lives and reflect the beauty and majesty of God that comes to earth and radically renews everything that became ruined because of sin. It's time that you and I dance, friends. Anybody feel like dancing? I have to ask. First step towards dancing for the kingdom is entering the kingdom and embracing the kingdom. That means that today in our midst, if there's anybody here, you don't know where you stand with God, you don't know where you stand with the Savior who died for you to make you radically new and to empower you for His work on earth. And you've gone through life as you're some of the testimonies wondering what purpose is there in my life? What am I here for? And you need to know today the radical gospel is Jesus Christ died for you, not just to save you from your sins, but to empower you to live the life God intended you to. And this morning I want to give an invitation. I want to give an invitation. I know it's scary. There's public. There's people here. And I want to give an invitation to anybody in this room today, anybody in this room today who's saying, I don't know this Jesus. I want to know this Jesus. I'm tired of living my life the way I am, my life falling apart. I want to live my life for him in such a way that my, wife will, my life will come together. My life will cohere in harmony. My life will make sense. I want to live my life for something larger than me. I want to know this Jesus. If that is you, if that is you, I'm going to invite you actually to stand up from where you are and come up forward. Here's the thing. With our church, as you're coming up forward, you won't be up here by yourself. There will be somebody who will either come alongside of you as you're walking down or will come right up here and stand next to you. And I want to know, come on up, brother. Come on up. Come on up. Right here. Come on up. 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 Hey. What's your name? Charles. Okay. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? 
Is there anybody else? You know these brothers? You know brothers? Michael, come on up, please. Is there anybody? Come on down. Come on down. Come on down. Come on down. Is there anybody? Come on down. Thank you, Lord. Stand right here. Stand right here. Anybody else? Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? Come on up. Come on up. You will not be alone. You will not stand alone. Come on up. 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 Come on over here. Come on over here. Is there anybody else? This is the work of God. Is there anybody else? Don't you dare sit there. And let this opportunity pass. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? I'm going to ask some of the new community prayer folks and leaders to come on up in a moment and to embrace our brothers and our sisters, pray for them, talk to them, minister to them. But I'm going to do one more thing before we ask the worship team to come on up. And here it is. Here it is. Don't do this lightly. Resurrection means that you could have lived your entire life until today as Jesus is my Savior. I'm going to heaven. That's great news. But today, today, I'm asking for commitment for people out there who will say, today everything changes. Jesus Christ came out of the grave. Everything changes. My life matters for the kingdom here and now. Here and now. Will you stand up? Do not do this lightly. This isn't rededication. You're not rededicating yourself to anything. This is your willingness to stand in front of your brothers and your sisters and say, my life matters. My life counts for something. My life is for something bigger and larger than just me. Jesus Christ has risen. The ultimate restoration project has begun. All sin, death, and decay has been overcome. And he will come again to renew everything. And God... Worship team, please come on up as we pray. And Father, we lift up our brothers and our sisters to you. Father, you are looking down at an army of kingdom people. You look down today, Lord, and you see godly men and women who will sing, who are saying as they stand on their feet, my life matters for this world. My life matters for the here and now. I will join in the work of God in renewing and restoring all things. Use me. Use me, Father. Call on me with the gifts and talents and abilities you have given me. I will go forth and live my life in such a way that people will see a glimpse of the kingdom here on earth. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. And until we see you again, Jesus, coming to restore and heal all things, your people rejoice in the great work that because of today, everything has changed. Because of today, everything is different. Because of today, nothing will ever be the same again. Death has been overcome. Sin has been conquered. 
decay. And life as God has intended will be ours once again. He has given this to you. He has said, receive the kingdom. And as you stand on your feet and as you respond to our God in singing these songs unto the Lord, give yourself all of it, all of it to Him. All of it to Him. All of it to Him. Let's worship our Lord. Church, we have amazing things to be thankful for this morning. In a moment, I want us to just shout and scream and yell and clap. Not only for the lives that have left the kingdom of darkness and have entered the kingdom of light. Hold on. Not only for the resurrection Sunday that allows us purpose and meaning to go out and live our lives radically for Him. Not only for the men and women who served incredibly hard this morning, including all the tech people, all the worship team, everybody. Today is a day in which we could say hallelujah and say thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the community, for men and women, for life day. Let's do it together. Yes, Lord! Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Yeah. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you do. 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 Thank you, Gospel Choir. You know what? Today, as you leave, they're going to go and take us out on this song that we sang earlier. And I want you guys to walk out of here, stay mingled, do whatever you want to do. Can't wait to see you guys next year as we baptize you here. Thank you all for being here today. Worship team, gospel choir, lead us out.